Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Samuel 9. First Samuel 9, title of the message, Filled for Ministry. It's going to be a two-part message. Uh, we'll, we'll hit the content this morning, so you're not going to be left hanging, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we're just going to briefly touch on two ministries of the Holy Spirit after we walk through our actual text. And then this evening, because we're there and we're in the context of the Spirit of God, we're going to round out the teaching on the Spirit of God and talk about other ministries of the Holy Spirit, ones that are not necessarily related to our text today, but ones that, that will help us remember exactly what, who the Holy Spirit is, He's a person, and what, how He functions, particularly in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit is the most essential person in a believer's life, the most precious gift God could have ever given to those who believe on His name and the most precious gift you could ever possess. The Holy Spirit of God is, to we who have believed on the name of Jesus Christ, the very deepest assurance of our hope in Christ, the most poignant expression of our eternal security and the exclusive empowerment that we have in this life to serve God. There is no capacity to serve God in this life apart from the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. Indeed, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people changed dramatically on the day of Pentecost. You perhaps recall the events early in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit falls upon 120 men and women who are in the upper room praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come for the comforter that Jesus Christ had promised. And on that day, the ministry of the Holy Spirit changed dramatically in this world. In many ways, we might even say this age that we call the church age or this age that we call the age of grace, we might rightly say, I was talking to a pastor this week at camp and, and, and he agreed with me that we might rightly call this the age of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is working in a manner in this age of the church that he did not work in the Old Testament. And we're going to highlight some of these differences this morning. The differences this morning, this evening we'll talk about his ministry to the church itself. But we're going to highlight these, these differences about how you and I interact with the Holy Spirit today and how the Old Testament saints and, and the Old Testament men and women interacted with the Holy Spirit. And this is why. Because as we walk through the passage today, you're going to find a man that becomes filled with the Holy Spirit. A couple of chapters down the road, I don't know how many weeks it will be quite yet, we're going to find that same spirit leave him. And this engenders questions. See, because if you open your New Testament and you start reading, you're going to come to the natural conclusion that the Holy Spirit that has been given to you is yours. <laughs> that he's not leaving. That he doesn't come and go, he stays. And in fact, that's sound doctrine that the Holy Spirit is not removed from us. And yet in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit coming and going. We see David pray in the Psalms, Lord, take not thy spirit from me. And so we need to understand the function of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We need to understand what he's doing, what he's not doing, and the implications of it. 
And that's what we're going to look at today following our little jaunt through our passage here in 1 Samuel 9 and then into the first 16 verses of 1 Samuel 10. And for our application today, we are going to consider some of these similarities, some of the differences, and then drawing on these parallels, we're going to understand in a greater way how we are interacting with the Holy Spirit in our lives today. So we begin by walking through our text in 1 Samuel 9, and uh, we'll begin in verse 25. Please take a look with me. We'll read through verse 27, just the first couple of verses here. And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house, and they arose early. And it came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up! that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel, abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Let me first remind you where we find ourselves in the text from last week. Saul had been looking, recall, for his father's asses. They had wandered off and his father sent him and said, Go find our flock. And so Samuel, go, or excuse me, Saul is looking for his father's asses, which had gone missing. And in a final act of desperation, because he could not find them, uh, his servant says, Let's go ask the seer. We're we're near the place where the seer lives, the prophet of God. Let's go ask him. And Samuel, excuse me, Saul, I'm going to get that mixed up all all this morning, I see. Saul says, well, we don't have anything to give to him. The servant says, it's okay, I've got got some money, let's go and we'll we'll give him that as our gift. And so they go and they find Samuel. And then we we remember, we, we saw that Samuel was expecting Saul and immediately told him when he got up there, don't worry, the asses have been found. They're back with your father, but I'd like you to stay with me tonight. I'd like you to dine with me this evening, and then tomorrow you can go on your way. And so Saul, I mean, he's not going to say no to the prophet of God. He stays there, and Saul is placed in the chiefest seat. He is given the place of honor among the people, the 30 men that were there that evening, He was given a choice piece of meat and he was told by Samuel, you, sir, are the desire of all Israel. Recall, uh, perhaps as, as we were talking about this last week, the kind of impact that would have had on Saul, the kind of weight that would have been collecting on his shoulders as all of a sudden he's gone from just being uh, the son of, of a, herdsman to now all of a sudden he's being told he's the desire of all Israel. He is, he is someone special in the eyes of the Lord. And that's where we pick up in verses 25 through 27. We've read it together. Following the meal that Saul and Samuel had together, the text says that um, Samuel was, upon, was communing with Saul upon the top of the house. And they arose early and it came to pass that at the beginning of the day, the spring of the day, Samuel called Saul again to the top of the house. So they spent the night uh, uh, talking and, and eating on the top of the house. Then, then uh, Saul leaves for the evening. He gets rest. He comes back the next morning. He goes back to the top of the house. The houses in Israel at this time and even into the time of Jesus were typically, if it was a more permanent structure, uh, a square and then it had a square roof and that roof would become a place 
where people would regularly congregate. They would fellowship there. Uh, there were many thatched houses as well, as you recall in Sunday school last week, um, two weeks ago, with the healing of the paralytic, and they took the thatches off the roof and let a man down through the roof. So there were thatched roofs as well, but this would not have been one of those. It would have been a flat roof where people could congregate. In the book of Acts, we see Peter on a similar flat roof. And so it was time for Saul to leave, and Samuel gets up, and they, they go together, and he walks Saul out of the city, to the end of the city. And verse 27 says, As they were going toward the end of the city, as they neared the edge, Samuel tells Saul, Let your servant go on a little bit farther. I want you to stay here. I want your servant to move on without you. And the scriptures say that that's what happened, that the servant went on, and it gave them an opportunity just to talk one-on-one, to have a little man-to-man here. And it is the content of that conversation that we'll see beginning in 1 Samuel 10, verse one. And as we consider the content, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head, that would be Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? The first thing Samuel does here is he anoints Saul's head with oil. Throughout the history Uh, of Israel, the anointing of oil upon the head of a man had been a symbol of him being chosen, of him being set aside for a particular purpose. You might even recall that several times in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called the Lord's anointed, meaning that he was set aside, he had been chosen for a very specific purpose. And so the symbolic nature of this anointing of his head with oil is that he had been chosen for something very specific. And uh, in the context of Middle Eastern culture, this was an extremely important uh, event. Now, Samuel, we recall, is the prophet of God. He is also not just a prophet of God, but he is the current judge in Israel. A judge had the authority to lead Israel into God's will. A judge was, as it were, God's representative to the people in a similar way that a prophet would have been. Samuel was both. And so for Samuel, as a judge, to anoint the head of Saul was to give a divine decree that Saul had been chosen. This is not just Samuel going off on his own here. This is God's choice. This is God's decree. And hence, Samuel, when he, when he asked the, the servant to move on and for Saul to stay there, he said, you stay here for a minute. I want to show you, not my word. He said, I want to show you the word of God. Saul had been chosen. And it's significant that in the 500 years that Israel had been a nation to this point, This was the first man outside of the regular priestly anointing, the anointing of the priest, which was a regular thing commanded in the law. This was the first man that had been anointed by God outside of just the the regular expectation in the law. Very, very significant moment in Israel's history. Saul is now set aside as the Lord's anointed to be the captain, the king of God's people. And the way that God put it here, that you are going to be the captain of my inheritance or the captain of God's inheritance is also very important. See, because God was telling Saul, these are still my people. These are mine. I'm just giving you leadership. 
I am giving you leadership over my people. May I, may I give you kind of a carnal example? I don't want this to sound trite. I don't want this to sound irreverent. But may I, may I illustrate it this way? I'm not there yet, but you know, there's coming a day where um, the, the, uh, a parent has a child and they get a license and you take your car keys and you put them in your child's hand. They say, hey, can I go to the store and get something? And they just got their license and you take your keys and put them in their hand and, and they know it's not their car, but you're giving them control over the car. And you might say something to the effect of, don't do anything I wouldn't do, right? It's still my car. You need to treat it as if it's my car. You need to treat it the way I want you to treat it because it's not yours, but you're going to be in control of it. You're going to determine when it goes, when it stops, when it turns, when it doesn't because you have the car keys. In a manner of speaking, God is kind of giving Saul the car keys here. He's saying, look, this is my nation. I still want this nation led my way. This is not your nation to do with what you want, but I am putting you, making you the leader of it, giving you, in a manner of speaking, control over this nation. Saul, don't do anything I wouldn't do. To defy the Lord's anointed, however, was to defy the Lord himself. Saul was given a position of extreme importance in God's theocracy. Such was the privilege and such was the responsibility placed upon the shoulders of Saul and upon the nation of Israel on this day. And after this, Samuel gives Saul three signs. Saul is kind of perhaps in a little bit of disbelief here. His head is all oily now, and this is an excessively uh, significant event. Everybody knows the significance of anointing. And now Saul might be in a little bit of disbelief. So Samuel says, there's going to be three signs, Saul. And when these three signs come to pass, then you'll know that this is indeed the word of God. And this is par for the course in Israel's history. This was the, the function of the prophet. The prophet declared the word of the Lord. The, the primary function of the prophet was not to give to tell you the future. The primary function of the prophet was to tell you God's will, was to call you to God. And then the prophet was then given the power to either work miracles or to prophesy of future events for the purpose of validating his message. And so Saul says, do you want, or Samuel says, do you want proof that, that I'm, I'm speaking for the Lord here? There's going to be three signs. When these three signs come to pass, then you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is God's will, that God is leading you into this truth. And we see these three signs in verses 2 through 6 in chapter 10. I'm just going to read them. You see a synopsis of those signs on the screen behind me. The first sign is in verse 2. When thou art departed from me today, Samuel says, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulchre in the border of Benjamin and Zelzah. And they will say unto thee, the asses which thou wentest to seek are found, and lo, thy father hath left care of the asses and sorroweth for you, saying, what shall I do for my son? So the first sign, Samuel, is going to be that you're going to find some men. And it's going to be in this particular geographic location. And they're going to tell you, hey, Saul, hey, Saul, we found the asses, but your father was so concerned when you didn't come back, he's left the, the asses, he's left his herds, and he's gone to find you. Verses 3 and 4 is the second sign. Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel. 
one carrying three kids and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. So you're going to keep going and you're going to find these people and they're going to have um, some offerings unto the Lord and they're going to give you of the three loaves of bread they have, they're going to give you two of them. When you see that, Saul, remember I told you it was going to happen. And then the third sign in verses 5 and 6. After that, thou shalt come to the hill of God where is the garrison of the Philistines, and it shall come to pass, when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man." Two important clarifications to make on this final, this final prophecy here. First, when, when it speaks of the hill of God, uh, the scripture is most likely speaking of Gibeah, the place where Saul lived. And this is the first time that we find out that Saul, in fact, lives in Gibeah. If you were to look at the hill of God in the Hebrew text, um, it actually is the, the word hill and the word Gibeah are, are so similar that it really could be either or. Here, because of course the Hebrew is not pointed. The pointing differences might have made the difference between whether it's speaking of just the hill or speaking of the city. But either way, it's very, very likely that this is Gibeah, the same Gibeah where Saul will live for a good portion of the rest of his life. Now, the second concept I want to introduce to you here is this idea of these prophets. You recognize um, that as he's going, he's going to come to a company of prophets. What is going on here? What is this company of prophets? As we think of prophets in the Old Testament, we typically see the prophets as men that God just raised up, right? You think of Samuel, and one day Samuel's lying in his bed, and he hears the voice of the Lord calling, and when he finally says, Here am I, Lord... Oh, and he, he makes himself available to the Lord. The Lord introduces himself and says, I've got a job for you. You think of Jeremiah, you think of Isaiah, you think of Hosea, you think of all of those, the, the minor prophets, the major prophets. And these men were, were nothing special per se. But one day God started speaking to them. And God said, I have a message for you to declare to the nation of Israel. And yet here in the Old Testament, we find a company of prophets and they were attached to what was, is, is somewhat called the school of the prophets. Beginning in the days of Samuel, continuing all the way through to the captivity, we see this group of young men. And it seems as though these were men that were drawn to a prophet of God, that the called prophet of God, be it Samuel here, or we'll see later Elijah and Elisha, that these men are seen as the one that God has chosen as the prophet to the nation. And then there are people that, young men, who would recognize the, the prophet's gifts and they would kind of come to the prophet to be trained by him, to associate themselves with him, to sit under his teaching and Perhaps they sought by chance to receive a measure of his spirit. You recall when Elijah and Elisha were walking together and Elijah is about ready to be swept by the Lord and taken away by the chariot of fire. And, and, and Elijah says, what would thou ask? And Elisha's request was that I would receive a double portion of thy spirit. These young men were, were desiring to be used of the Lord, were desiring to have the spirit of the Lord upon them to, to minister the Word of God. 
We might say that they sought him out for mentorship, to receive full-time training in how to worship God and how to serve God. Since the priesthood was only for those of the tribe of Levi, this was, we might say, this school of the prophet was probably the closest thing an Israelite out of the Levitical priesthood could get to full-time ministry in the nation. They would seek the privilege of being filled with the Spirit of God and through the Spirit uttering declarations of truth and of worship. Of, uh, they would learn instruments so that they could have a greater capacity to sing praises unto God's name. They would, um, well, we, we might really liken it today to a modern Bible college. Young men, young men would, would go there to learn how to, to devote themselves to the ministry of God. These schools must not have been wrong. You say, well, were, were these schools wrong? Is this something, obviously God doesn't institute them. Is, is it a bad thing? Well, they must not have been a bad thing because Samuel doesn't rebuke them. Elijah doesn't rebuke them. Elisha only rebukes them for what they're saying, not for, for being prophets. Uh, he rebukes them because um, of their, their, the words that they spoke to him. And so it seems likely that the school of the prophets was done with the Lord's blessing. And so Samuel says in verses 7 and 8, notice with me as we continue in chapter 10, And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, speaking to Saul, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. So when these things come to pass, Samuel says, the Spirit of God will come upon Saul. He'll be changed into a different man, Samuel says. And then he says, do what you need to do. Go to Gilgal, or excuse me, go to Gibeah. Do what you need to do. And then when you're all set, get down to Gilgal. And Gilgal is where the public anointing was going to take place. We don't have time to go into it today, but if you were going to do a study on the history of Israel, you would find Gilgal to be one of the most important places as far as the covenant between God and Israel in the land of Canaan. It was the place where Joshua reinstituted the covenant, reaffirmed the covenant between God and Israel. It was the place where the men of Israel were recircumcised before going into the land. This was a place, the name Gilgal literally means rolling, and God says it is on this day, it is on this day, and that's why they called it Gilgal, that the reproach of Egypt has rolled off of you. So we're calling this place Gilgal. Place of extreme significance. Samuel says, go there. That is where we're going to anoint you before the nation as king. So he says, get down there, and in seven days, I'll be down there to meet you. Well, sure enough, everything happens just as Samuel said it would. The first two signs come to pass, and we find the account of these actual events in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9 is very significant. Look at it with me. And it was so that when he had turned his back, that Saul, to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart and all those signs came to pass that day. The text says here that as Saul turned from Samuel to go his way, God gave him another heart. Now, we as believers speak often about the heart of of a man because the scriptures speak often about the heart of a man. But in the spiritual sense, when we speak about the heart, we must understand when the Bible, most regularly, when the Bible speaks about the heart and when we in, in this church speak about the heart, 
it has absolutely nothing to do with that organ in your chest that is pumping blood throughout your body. That is not your spiritual heart. That is flesh. That is muscle. That is not the heart that the Bible is speaking of. When the Bible speaks of your heart in a spiritual sense, it is talking about the very core of your being, what makes you a person. It's talking about your thoughts and your desires, the things that you think about when you're alone, the things that you say and that you do. It's your mind, but it's even a little bit deeper than just your mind. It's the very essence of your being. That is what the Bible is speaking of when it talks about your heart. If we may put it this way, your heart is the real you. It's the real you. It's, it's that part that, that can't be taken from you. It's your personality. It's your will. It's your thoughts. Pastor, why call it the heart then? You know, we find in Scripture that various parts of a man's anatomy are anthropomorphized, if we might, I don't even know if that's quite the right word for it, but they're used to illustrate emotions. We talked about this a little bit last Tuesday night, the Tuesday night before when we actually had Tuesday night. Um, that uh, when the scriptures want to talk about the emotions of a man, they talk about the bowels, the intestines. They they say, my bowels yearn within me. Quite typically in the Psalms, you'll get that idea. And for whatever reason, in the Hebrew mind, they associated their, their... intestines, their digestive system with emotions. Maybe that's because, you know, when you get stressed or upset, it's kind of the place you feel it, isn't it? Physically, a lot of times the indigestion and and ulcers and those sorts of things crop up. Medical science says ulcers, you know, don't uh, aren't caused by stress. Well, anybody that's had ulcers would probably beg to differ that when they reduce their stress, something happens in there and things get better. So all of that being said, for whatever reason, the Hebrew mind associated emotions with their bowels. In the same way, the Hebrew mind associated your very being with your heart. Now, if you saw a person lying on the floor, God forbid someone were to to, to pass out here today, but if you saw a person lying on the floor and you wanted to check to make sure that they were alive, what would you do? Right? Put your hand on the carotid. Put your hand on their wrist. You would search for a pulse. What is the pulse telling you? It's telling you the heart's beating. That's what the the pulse does. It tells you the heart's beating. When you're watching a movie and a person's in the hospital and they want to show you that that person just died, what do you see? What do you hear? You hear beep, right? And what is that? Well, that is the flat line of the heart monitor. Because as long as the heart is beating that person is still alive. Your beating heart is synonymous with your physical life. You can live without limbs. You can even live, many people have lived for a long time brain dead. The doctor will say, he's brain dead, but we're keeping his heart beating. He's still alive, even if his brain is not functioning well. They can live brain dead, you can live without limbs, you can live without eyes, you can live without these things, but when your heart stops, Life is over. So spiritually speaking, the Hebrew mind associated the heart with life, with being, with essence. Your thoughts, your motives, your desires, the fiber of who you are. And that's why they use the heart. You know, you talk about people that have had heart transplants and they have all these feel-good stories about uh, personalities changing and such. Well, that, that's fine, but, but really that's not what we speak of when we speak of the heart, right? The heart is the place of, of, uh, that we often associate with love, 
but, and those sorts of things. But, but at the end of the day, it's meant to be a reflection of our personality, our being, our thought processes. Now, until this day, the scriptures tell us um, that, that Saul had a different heart. Uh, we might say this. He had the heart of a cattleman. He, it, it was what he did. It was who he was. When Sam, Saul, Samuel told Saul that he's the desire of all Israel, Saul said, who am I? Not me. I'm just a nobody. But the Bible says, as Saul turned away from Samuel on that day, that God gave Saul a new heart, a new capacity, a new direction, a new capability for leadership, the, the, the ability to, to think differently, to think on the level of what God would expect him to do, that God gave him a new heart. It doesn't mean that the flesh changed. It means that God fundamentally changed who Saul was. And you know, we see that in our own lives, do we not? The day you accepted Christ as your Savior, those of you that that accepted Christ young, you may not have recognized the change, but for some of you who accepted Christ later on in life, things changed, didn't they, when you accepted Christ? Your, Your mind, your thoughts, the way you looked at life changed. You could say that you had a heart change. That, that, that the very fiber of who you were is not what it was before. That's the idea here. That God gave Saul a new heart. And the scriptures tell us that everything Samuel said came to pass that day. But the text skips ahead to the final prophecy, that third prophecy, the one with the prophets. And it skips ahead to that one. We just assume the other two took place because the Bible says they did. And then we see um, in verses 10, 11, 12, this third prophecy come to pass. Follow it with me. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, the company of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him, that's Saul, and he prophesied among them. Continuing in verse 11. And it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, what is this? that is come unto the son of Kish. Is Saul also among the prophets? Saul was not in the school of the prophets, though the school probably knew of him because they lived nearby. These young men spent all their days desiring a portion of the Spirit of God to fall upon them unto prophecy. And here's Saul in their presence with the Spirit of God falling upon him and without any training, like they've been training, without any effort, like they've been putting forth effort, he simply begins to prophesy unto the Lord. And then we continue in verse 12. And one of the same, one of these prophets, answered and said, but who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? Who is their father was the reply to this. A wise and natural reply. See, the prophets had said this. They looked at Saul, Saul's prophesying, and they said, isn't this the son of Kish? I mean, this is, this, is, this is Saul here. We know this kid. He's, he's a herdsman. He takes care of his father's asses. What, what is he doing prophesying? And then there was someone that had a little... They were, their mind was engaged that day. They were thinking perhaps just a little more than the other prophets on that day. And they said something to this effect. And this is what it means when they say, but who is their father? They said, what does it matter whose father... Uh, um, who Saul's father is? Who are your fathers? You're seeking to have the Spirit of God poured upon you. Was your father a prophet? And every single one of them would say, oh, no, my father's not a prophet. 
Yeah, my father's not a prophet. Nope, my father's not a prophet. See, you're, God, God the, the, the spirit of prophecy is not one that God gives hereditarily is what he's saying here. What does it matter who Saul's father is? He's prophesying because the Spirit of the Lord fell upon him just in the same way you're seeking the Spirit of the Lord to fall upon you to prophesy. So who's their father? Who's the father of these schools of the prophets? It really doesn't matter. Saul is manifesting the Holy Spirit unto divine prophecy in the same way they were seeking it. And so the proverb began on that day, is Saul also among the prophets? And this proverb, this expression was going to be used throughout Israel's history Anytime a man was seen acting in a context which seemed out of place. See, Saul didn't, for, for all that the Spirit of God was coming upon him, he didn't fit the part of, a, of the prophet. He was a tall, handsome, burly man, uh, perhaps not the best educated of men. May, maybe so, we don't really know. Uh, he was a herdsman. They said, something's not right here. It just doesn't look right to see Saul prophesying is what they were going. And so anytime something didn't look quite right, they would say... <laughs> Is Saul among the prophets? We might liken it if, if the nation of Israel today went to a basketball game and they saw all of the players running out on the court and you've got, you know, six foot four, six foot six, seven foot two, and then they see this little five foot four guy coming out. And apart from their understanding of his talent, maybe he was, I mean, I'm certainly if he's playing basketball for a team, he's probably got some talent, but they would look at that and they would say, is Saul also among the prophets? This guy is just out of place here. He's down here, there, up here. It just doesn't look right. That's, that's what the proverb meant. And in verses 13 and 14, we see this, this prophecy finish. And when he had made an end of, the pro- of prophesying, he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, Whither went ye? And he said, To seek the asses. And when we saw that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel, and let's just continue through verses 15 and 16. And Saul's uncle uh, said, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto you. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found, but of the manner of the kingdom whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. So Saul gets back home. Of course, his dad isn't there because his dad has gone looking for him. And he meets his uncle. And you can imagine his uncle's a little upset. His uncle's been stuck with extra work now because dad's gone. His brother's gone. And he looks at Saul and he says, Kid, where have you been? Your dad had to leave his responsibilities to go and find you because you took so long. You should have known to come back earlier. The asses have been here for a while now. Where have you been? And and Samuel simply answers, Well, I I went to seek the asses and I I couldn't find them. And then we asked the, the prophet of the Lord and he kind of hung us up for a little while. Now Saul is not just saying we went and saw the seer. He says we went and saw Samuel. Saul didn't even know the guy's name before, if if the text is any indication. He didn't know the seer's name. Now he's talking about the seer on a first-name basis. The uncle says, something's changed here. Something is different. And so the uncle asks, well, what did the prophet say unto you? And Saul reflects a little of his timidity here. And he only tells half the story. He doesn't lie. He just doesn't tell everything that Samuel said. He says, well, Samuel told me that the asses had been found. He decided to leave out that part about him being anointed king. You know, about, about the kingdom, the anointing, the new heart, and prophecy, all of those things. He just left that out. And that's where we're going to leave our text today. Now, as we try to bring these concepts close to home, I'd like us to focus upon this idea that, that Samuel was filled with the Holy Spirit, and, or excuse me, Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy unto the Lord. And the reason I'd like to spend time there, as I mentioned earlier in the service, is because we find throughout the Old Testament the Holy Spirit coming 
and going. But in the New Testament, we find, by and large, the teaching of the Holy Spirit to be that he remains. And so what happened? What is different? What is the same? I'd like us to understand that this evening, and we're going to do, or excuse me, this morning, and we're going to do so with two concepts here. We're going to learn only about two ministries of the Holy Spirit, broad ministries, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to contrast these, and then this evening we'll round out our teaching on the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. We actually learn very little in the Old Testament, and I apologize, the next slide is going to, I, uh, I had a, uh, some verses up, and one of them I think will say hold, because I had it, a placeholder there, and I didn't change that, so forgive me for that, um, but there are verses to be associated with these. We learn very little in the Old Testament about, um, especially compared to the New Testament, about the Holy Spirit's operation before Pentecost. We know that he did indwell men, but that that indwelling came and went. We know that he did fill men, but that filling came and went. Indeed, the permanent and powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit of God is seen in Scripture almost exclusively within the context of the church of Jesus Christ and the age of grace following Jesus' death, resurrection, and then the outpouring of his Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And in this respect, the baptism of the Holy Spirit will be no different It is understood and it is exemplified in Scripture exclusively in the context of the New Testament believer. When we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're talking New Testament believer. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens both in the Old and in the New Testament. And in both cases, it's found to be temporary, that it can come, and that it can go. The filling of the Holy Spirit was the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and we must understand the difference between these two. So let's begin, and I, I, I think I bit off more than I can chew this morning, so, so buckle your seatbelts, I'm going to try to get through it. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit speaks not of water baptism, nor of a moment of ecstasy, a second blessing following salvation, but of the moment when a man or a woman personally accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior. When they confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus, when they believe in their heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, and they are saved, that is the moment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At that moment, many things happen in a believer's life. Regeneration, indwelling, uh, justification, uh, the beginning of sanctification, the beginning of uh, being taught by the Holy Spirit of God. Conviction of sin is different. Many things. But the spiritual baptism is a one-time permanent event that is experienced by every believer in the church age so that it can rightly be said that if you are a believer, if you are saved, then you have been Holy Spirit baptized. And if you have been Holy Spirit baptized, then you are a believer. Now, the concept of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is found throughout the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. But in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, it's always spoken of as something that you're looking forward to. And in the New Testament epistles, it's something that is taught as being here. In Isaiah 44, verse 3, this prophecy is given by Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeserun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thy offspring. You see the analogies of pouring out water and pouring out his spirit. This is the, the, a prophecy of the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's found as well in Ezekiel 39, verse 28. God says this, 
Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land, and I have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I have, here it is again, poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. In uh, Joel, we find the most pointed prophecy excuse me, prophecy of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In verses 28 and 29, the scriptures say, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. In fact, Peter in his great first sermon there on the day of Pentecost quotes Joel chapter 2 as the proof of what is going on at that moment. Now, in the context of these three passages, we find that some of these promises with relation to Israel and God pouring out His Spirit on national Israel are yet to come to pass. God says there's coming a day, we saw it in Ezekiel, where I will gather you from the nations and there will not be one person of Israel not in Israel, is what he's saying there. I will gather every single one of you from the nations and then I will pour my spirit out. Well, we know that that hasn't happened yet. Israel is a nation, but certainly they have not been fully regathered yet. And so we, we recognize that there's coming a day where the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon the full nation of Israel is yet to come to pass. And that does not um, uh, concern us, throw us, intimidate us because we recognize several times in the Old Testament that when God gives a prophecy, uh, those prophecies don't reflect distance of time between certain promises. But we see now that we are in this age of the church that there must be gaps. There must be time periods between certain portions of the prophecy of the Word of God and their fullest fulfillment. In Romans 11, uh, Paul tells us that the blindness uh, has happened to Israel in part so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. And then there will come a day when the promises of God to pour out His Spirit on all Israel will be realized. And Paul says in Romans 11.26, all Israel shall be saved. And he's without question speaking in a national context there. Without question speaking of national Israel. And so we, we recognize that these prophecies were, were given to Israel, but that they have been in part fulfilled through the church, and that link comes in, in several places. In John 1, verse 33, the, uh, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer is speaking here, and he says this, I knew him not, but he that sent me, that would be God, to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. So the New Testament opens with John declaring that the one who would baptize with the Holy Ghost, the one who would pour out His Spirit upon all men, was the, the, the one that was coming, the Messiah, his, who, whom He was heralding for. The same statement is recorded in Matthew 3.11. It's recorded in Mark 1.8. It's recorded in Luke 3.16. And the promise is also found, given by Jesus Christ Himself, in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus promised His followers that as soon as He left, he would send the Holy Spirit and that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Acts 1 verse 4 and 5 says this, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me, for truly, 
For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. The strong distinction made here between water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism must not be missed. This is not speaking of being water baptized. This is not, it has nothing to do with being dunked in water and being brought back out again. This has everything to do with the moment when the Holy Spirit of God comes and changes you from the inside out. We'll talk about the definition in just a few moments. It is also important to recognize that even after Jesus' resurrection, this was after Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 1, the believers had yet to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was not until the day of Pentecost that these things came to pass. The book of Acts is the only book, in fact, where the baptism of the Holy Spirit does not necessarily occur every time at the moment of salvation. And that is for a very specific reason. We've talked about it before when we've covered the book of Acts. I'm not going to get in it today. If that confuses you, or if you've wondered that before, well, how can the baptism be synonymous with salvation when in the book of Acts we see believers receiving the Holy Spirit afterward? Come see me. And we can talk about that a little bit. And I'm, uh, undoubtedly, it will come up in another sermon on another day. But as we step into the epistles, we find definitively that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is seen synonymously with the moment of salvation. And thus, we should doctrinally recognize them as the same event. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have been all made to drink into one Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit here is said by Paul to be enacted by the Spirit of God and at the moment that the spirit baptism of, of a person takes place, they are placed into a body. In the context of this chapter, we find that the body being spoken of there is what we would broadly call the church. We would talk about the local assembly and then perhaps the universal church. It is when you are, are placed into the church, your spirit baptism places you into the body of Christ. Well, if you're not in the body of Christ, believer, you're not saved. And if the Holy, Spirit of, uh, the Holy Spirit of God, if the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what places you into Christ, into this body, well then, by, by all accounts, you have to be Holy Spirit baptized if you're saved. It has to be the same event. They cannot be different events. We continue in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Quoted it just this morning. Paul says, Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul teaches very clearly here that the baptism of the Spirit is a baptism into the death of Christ. Now, don't miss this. It is at this moment that you are freed from Adam's curse, that you are freed from the curse of Adam's sin and you are given a new nature so that you are no longer in Adam and you are rightly described as in Christ. That's what Paul just said here. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That the newness of life, that being placed into Christ is synonymous with being baptized by the Holy Spirit. We can't miss this. The Holy Spirit can't be a second blessing, folks. The baptism of the Holy Spirit can't be a second blessing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit must be the moment of salvation for it is in that moment that we receive newness of life. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. 
old things are passed away, all things are become new. That is the moment of our salvation. When you put your faith in Christ, you put all of your eggs into Jesus' basket, you spiritually die with Him, and in doing so, you receive the privilege of spiritually living with Him so that the moment you exercise faith necessary to die unto yourself and to live unto Christ, you receive the promise that as He lives, so you shall live also. And this is done through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3.21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice Peter says, this baptism that saves you is not the baptism of water. It's the baptism of the heart. The putting away, or the, the answer of a good conscience toward God. Not dipping yourself in water. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. And he says that it is this baptism that saves us. Put it together with Romans chapter 6. Put it together with 1 Corinthians 12. We're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot be talking about anything else. So let me give you a de definition here. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a divine one-time transaction which takes place at the moment of salvation, whereby you are spiritually removed from your position in Adam and spiritually placed in Christ, thus judicially qualifying you to receive pardon from sin and eternal life or eternity in heaven. See, we're sinners. And you're not a sinner because you have sinned. Did you know that? You sin because you're a sinner. You are not a sinner because you have done sinful things. You sin because you're a sinner. Growing up, my family, the Wickler family, uh, they're pretty heavily Denver Bronco fans. I found myself to be one of those fans as well. One could even rightly say that as far as my immediate family is concerned, with respect to my immediate family, if you are a Wickler, you are a Broncos fan. But you know what? Being a Broncos fan was not what made me a Wickler. And the degree to which I am a Broncos fan is not the degree to which I can be defined as a Wickler. I was born a Wickler. And whether I'm a Broncos fan or not, I am still a Wickler. I can't get rid of my heritage because I get rid of my actions or my perceptions. And it's the same thing. You are a sinner. Whether you try your best to do good things or you try your best to do bad things. Whether you care about what other people think or don't. Whether you think you're a good person or think you're a bad person, it really doesn't matter. You were born a sinner because you were born in Adam. Your goodness has nothing to do with you being a sinner. Your badness has nothing to do with you being a sinner. Those are just symptoms of the cause. Your dad is a sinner. Your dad's dad was a sinner. And if we were able to make a family tree all the way back to the very beginning, you would find that your dad's 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 dad all the way back is, in fact, Adam. And Adam is a sinner. Which means you're a sinner too. And you can't undo that. Good works can't undo that. Because it's baked into you. So how is it that you, a sinner, can be justified, sanctified, redeemed? See, because, because you're a sinner, you've been separated from a holy God. How is it that you can be reconciled to that holy God when it's baked into you? It's not like you can just undo it. You can't just buy a new part. You can't just get a, uh, go to the doctor and say, hey, pop in a new heart and make sure it's not a sinner's heart. 
It doesn't work. It's, it's baked into us from the very core of our being. How can the very core of our being be changed? How can it be undone? Well, I tell you what, it can't be done by man. There's nothing that you can do to undo who you are. And that's why you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you at the moment of salvation and will give you a new heart. Will change you from the inside out. Will take you who is in Adam and will remove you from Adam and judicially place you in Christ. So that when God looks at you, He doesn't see Adam and his sin. He sees Christ and His sacrifice. If there's anyone in this room today who has never done that, you say, I know I'm a sinner, but I, I, I don't know that I'm on my way to heaven. I have never received this new life in Christ. I, I, if I were to die today, I don't know that I'm on my way to heaven. May I tell you what the Bible says? The Bible says that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ came to pay the price for your sin. And as I mentioned already, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that He hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's what Romans chapter 10 tells us. That if you will acknowledge your sin before God, if you will humble yourself before God, God say, I know I'm a sinner. And it's not just that I've done bad things. I can't just work my way out of this one, God. I'm stuck. And I know I'm stuck. But I know that Jesus Christ came, God in flesh, to pull me out of this, to to get me out of this to undo what Adam did for me, to take me out of Adam and to put me into Christ. And God, I need that. Would you take me and, and would you remove my sin? Would you remove me from Adam and place me into Christ? I believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never done that, would you do that this morning? If you don't know you're on your way to heaven, would you come and see me after the service? I'll take a Bible, I'll open it, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you what it means. If you're confused, don't, don't stay confused. Come and talk with me. Get this taken care of. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Divine one-time transaction which takes place at the moment of salvation where you are spiritually removed from your position in Adam, spiritually placed into Christ, judicially qualifying you to receive pardon of sin and eternity in heaven. Now we've talked about the baptism of the Spirit the blessing poured out upon believers in the last day, the church first and afterwards the nation of Israel at Christ's second coming. You say then, Pastor, if Old Testament saints did not receive spirit baptism, how were they saved? And this is where I want to clarify because we cannot say in every age that spirit baptism is the source. Actually, we can't say it in any age. Spirit baptism is not the source of your salvation, okay? Spirit baptism is in this age a result of your faith. Not the source of your faith, not the source of your salvation, the result of your salvation, the result of your faith. The basis of salvation is not spirit baptism. The basis of salvation is faith. Faith unto salvation has transcended every age. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. What saith the Scriptures? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What was it that saved Abraham way back before the law, way back in the Old Testament? What was it that saved this great man of God? It was his faith. 
in the revealed Word of God. Galatians 3.6, Even Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham said, God has made me promises. This is the revealed Word of God. I trust it. I believe it. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. James chapter 2, verse 23, The Scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. His faith made him whole. To use uh, Jesus' language regularly in the New Testament. And he was called the friend of God. Salvation has been in the same way, regardless of age, regardless of time. <coughs> Excuse me. Salvation is by grace through faith in the revealed Word of God. In Abraham's day, the revealed Word of God was that God would make him a great nation. Abraham believed it. It was counted unto him for righteousness. In our day, the Word of God is what? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To believe on God, to accept the Word of God today, you have to accept Christ, because He is the Word of God. So did Old Testament saints receive the baptism of the Spirit? No, they didn't. Not as far as we can tell. Does that mean that they could not be saved? Absolutely not. Baptism of the Spirit is a result in this age of your faith. It is a part of what it means to be saved today. We don't see that in the Old Testament, but what we do know from the Old Testament is that they were yet saved by faith. Here, much to the contrary, when we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's, an, it's overlapped greatly between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Spirit filling in Scripture describes a spiritual state whereby a person is under the control of the Holy Spirit and he is enabled thus by the Holy Spirit to perform a specific task, a specific spiritual task, uh, or simply operate under the general influence of the, God, of, of the Word of God. Spirit filling in any age is something that has been able to come and go. Filled for a task, then the task is over. These sorts of things. And as we talk about this, it does break itself up into two distinct Ideas. The first type of filling is where a person is specifically enabled for a task, always expressed as temporary. The second idea, though, of filling, when a person is operating under the influence of God's Word, is described as something that we ought to be doing daily. We ought to be regularly filled with the Spirit. Now, it's still something that can come and go, but that second type of filling is something that implicitly in the Scripture ought to always be there with you. Now, in relation to Saul, the filling that interests us is this enablement for a specific task by the Holy Spirit of God. And Saul exemplifies this type of filling, uh, that God had a task to accomplish. He had a king to raise up and to enable to lead his people. And he needed divine ability to do this. So God fills him with the Holy Spirit of God, with the divine enablement, the supernatural ability outside of himself to accomplish the task of leading the nation of Israel unto God. And that's what we find in verse 9 of chapter 10, that, that, that God gave him a new heart and then when he was filled with the Holy Spirit to prophesy, he was filled unto this sign of the prophecy. And this will leave him. The Spirit of the Lord will leave him in chapter 11. So this is a temporary filling unto a specific task. And when David is anointed king, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and is placed upon David for that task. For that task. Has nothing to do with their salvation, folks. This is for the task of leading the nation as the king of a theocracy. 
That's the Spirit filling. Now, second though, we find the Spirit very temporarily come upon Saul in order to prophesy. And I mentioned that just briefly. In verse 10, Spirit comes upon him. He prophesies with the prophets. They say, Saul among the prophets. That's a different filling than the one enabling him to be king. This is a, a, a filling for a second task. And so we see the Holy Spirit doesn't just necessarily fill for one task. He enables us for, for whatever task He needs of us. And for our application today, we're finally in application. I'd like us to consider our relationship with the Holy Spirit in this age as it relates to the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of your life for ministry. As we consider the two biblical ideas of filling, you'll notice I'm actually going to start with number two. The highlighted one there. And I'd like us to start with that one, that being the consistent lifestyle of operating under the influence of the Word of God. And then we'll come back to the idea of the temporary filling for a task. And here's what you need to understand. If you are a believer in this room, you have complete control over number two. Number two is up to you. Whether or not you will submit yourself to the Word of God and be led by the Word of God and thus filled by the Spirit. You have no control over number one. The Holy Spirit coming upon you and giving you what we might call supernatural ability to to perform a task that He's asked of you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, we see the Scriptures say this, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourself one to another in the fear of God. This is a clear command here that we see in verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a command, something the Scriptures obviously expect you to be able to do and for you to have control over. The Bible doesn't give you a command that you have no control over. This is a command for you to do something, and it is saying that you need to be filled with the Spirit of God, that at any given moment you are choosing in your life, at any given moment of any given day, you are choosing either to be led, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, or if you were to back up in the passage a little bit, to be led by the flesh, to be led by your lust, to be led by your old nature, materialism, emotions, anger, fear, anxiety, whatever it might be. And not only does this passage command us to be filled with the Spirit, but it it actually defines what that means. It gives us three definitive ways in which you can accomplish this expectation of living under the consistent influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And we find that in the next three verses. In verse 19, we find the first one. The first way to be filled with the Spirit of God is to cultivate a lifestyle of consistent praise and worship. Notice he says here, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing is an expression, as we see it, of praise and of worship to God. It isn't about walking around looking kind of weird, just singing at the top of your lungs all day. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that in your heart, there ought to be a regular and a consistent determination to worship and to praise your God. And the text tells us that the person that is living filled with the Spirit of God is one who is living in a state, a heart condition of praise toward God. Second, in verse uh, 20, the second way to be filled with the Spirit of God, to live under consistent control of the Holy Spirit, is to live a lifestyle of consistent thanksgiving unto God. Giving thanks always, he says, for all things unto God and the Father. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving to God for every circumstance reveals a heart of faith that recognizes that even in the unpleasant things in life, they can be used of God for good. Thanksgiving to God in every circumstance reveals a heart of acknowledgement that I cannot live life on my own, that I need God to be a part. That's why, for those of you that pray before a meal, that's why you do it. You're simply saying, God, I acknowledge that this meal came from you. And without you, I can't live. I can't eat. I don't have a roof over my head. I don't have a car. These things, I don't have clothes on my back. These are gifts of you. And to be filled with the Spirit is to be uh, in in a constant state of worship and of praise to God in your heart. But it is also to be in a constant state of thanksgiving to God, recognizing that all good things come from above. So if you're living filled with the Holy Spirit of God in this consistent way. You are praising God. You are thanking God. Third and finally, in verse 21, you are submitting yourself, not just to God, but one to another. Living under consistent control of the Holy Spirit is to live a lifestyle of consistent humility before God and man. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. To fear God and to keep His commandments is the whole duty of man, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12. Fear of God and humility before God go hand in hand. And if I fear God, then one of the things that I am going to do is I am going to approach others in submission. Submitting myself to fellow believers in Christ. Loving them selflessly. Living in consistent and deep deference to their needs. Even telling them the truth in love. Rebuking them when they need to be rebuked for sin. This is love. This is submission. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God according to Ephesians chapter 5. And the text tells us that the person who is living filled with the Spirit of God on a moment-by-moment basis is one who at any given moment is entertaining a heart of praise and of thanksgiving and of deep humility. And my question to you is this, how often do you live filled with the Spirit of God? This one that you can control, this one that says don't be filled with wine where it is excess. In other words, don't allow something else to control you. Allow the Holy Spirit to control you. Submit yourself to the Word of God. How often are you living there? How many moments of your day are filled with doubt or regret or frustration rather than praise and worship and thanksgiving? How many moments of your day are filled with pride and of anger and of conflict rather than submitting yourself one to another in the fear of God? How many moments of your day are controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit and the dictates of the Word of God? And folks, we must not yield that portion of the Spirit of God, which, if I may put it this way, we have control over. Now, we don't have control over the Spirit. We have control over how the Spirit is able to influence us. Because on the authority of God's Word, the spontaneous filling of the Holy Spirit in your life to do a specific task is most regularly given unto those who have already been yielded to God and yielded to the Spirit of God. Have you ever been witnessing to someone and at the end of your conversation you walked away saying, wow, verses came to mind that I have not read for years. Where did those come from? Or you explain things in a way and you're like, wow, I wish someone would have explained it to me that way because I've never even thought of it that way. And this spontaneous capacity to explain the Word of God, this spontaneous ability to recall verses that you hadn't heard for a little while, for, for, for a time, do you know what just happened there? The Spirit of God spontaneously took a yielded heart and guided it into divine truth for for the sake of another, for the sake of a ministry. That is a spontaneous filling of the Holy Spirit in your life unto a ministry, a spiritual 
task. The same can be said of comforting the afflicted. Someone is in great mourning and you talk to them and you walk away and you say, wow, those words of comfort, that couldn't have been me. Or, or they come up to you the next day and say, God used you in such a fantastic way and you're just humbled because all you did was pray with them and give them some Bible verses. This is the, whole, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit using you in a spontaneous way to minister spiritually. But if you yield the filling of the Holy Spirit that you have control over, praise, thanksgiving, submission one to another, then how can the Holy Spirit, you're not a yielded vessel for the Holy Spirit to use you spontaneously. Matthew 10, verses 18 through 20. Jesus Christ said that this would happen. He told His disciples, you shall be brought before governors and kings for My sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles, but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Jesus said it's going to happen. And Paul says, be not drunk with wine where it is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You are indeed commanded in Ephesians 5.18 to operate under moment-by-moment control of the Holy Spirit of God through purposed submission to the Word of God. And if you will do so this morning, if you will submit yourself to the Word of God in the area that you have control over, watch how God will use you spontaneously because you are a fitted tool, a willing vessel. And that's what you want. You want to be the one who God would choose in the day of your friend's great grief to be the ambassador for Christ to your friend. You want to be the one who God might choose when you're with that unbelieving person to open up a conversation so that you could be used of God to lead them unto the cross of Christ. That ought to burn in your heart that you could be a vessel that the Lord would see fit to use mightily for some tremendous spiritual task. But you know, it starts with yieldedness to the Word of God. It starts with what you know how to do. It starts with that which is under your control. And as you are not filled with the things of this world, but rather under the control of the Holy Spirit through praise and through thanksgiving and through submission one to another in love, watch how God can use you. So today, we saw Saul temporarily filled with the Holy Spirit of God unto the task that God had called him unto. And we'll see how that plays out in the next several weeks. We saw how the Holy Spirit baptism is something given to a believer that is, is distinct from what we saw today with Saul. But that this idea of filling is something that God has always done. He sought for vessels that He can use to accomplish spiritual tasks through Him. As we go today, may I encourage you to be that vessel through whom God can work. Let's pray together.